Welcome to Inside the Pipe, the industrial refrigeration podcast that covers the work, lifestyle, and hazards of a career in natural refrigeration, where we love the smell of ammonia and hate the smell of sulfur. Here's your host, Joshua Reese. What is going on, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Inside the Pipe. So before we get into today's guest, I want to talk about training. I had a pretty eventful week last week and got some great exposure to some really cool training out there. Um, Let me start by saying that if you're wanting to really excel in your career, it's going to take training. Now, you may be one of these guys that works for a company that doesn't invest in training. Uh, My advice to you guys is to give feedback to your leadership that you absolutely need it. And if they refuse to do so, move on. Don't invest your time in a company that doesn't invest in you. Um, We've all heard that saying about management being scared to train their employees because they'll just leave for better positions. And another manager saying that what if they don't train their staff and they stay? That saying is true. Your company will only be as good as your training is. I've always loved that saying. All leadership should be looking to bring the skills of their subordinates up. If you're not doing this, you need to start. It only strengthens your department and companies. Now, I would also say that you need to invest in yourself. I bought my own Rita books and paid for the testing myself. Actually, I think Publix paid for the testing, but nonetheless, I bought the books Um, And as a matter of fact, I've personally purchased just about all of the training material and certifications that I've taken over the years. And it most certainly has paid off. If you're one of these guys that's always yapping about not getting paid for this and not getting paid for that, you're probably not heading anywhere fast. I've even dove into those excuses um, a time or two myself. I've spent several years not going anywhere because I refuse to invest in myself. I had that exact attitude. When I first got into this industry, I wanted to be the absolute best there was. I grabbed every bit of information that I could, and I studied as hard as I could. I did it to get my RETA certification, and I did it when I got my mechanical contractor's license. But guess what I did when I achieved that? I felt like I had made it. I didn't need to study anymore, and I didn't need to apply myself, and boy was I wrong. I spent many years falling behind because of this ignorance. If you feel like you've made it, I suggest you check yourself and get back into the habit of investing in yourself. And a great way to do this is by online training. I had the privilege this past week of reviewing two different online training sites. The first one was from my brother from across the globe, Mr. Patty Durham from New Zealand. Patty, what's up, dude? If you're listening to this, I'm sure you're going to at some point. Um, Patty spends a lot of time investing in his trade and trying to train people. He's extremely passionate about ammonia refrigeration. Um, if you're on any of the Facebook groups or LinkedIn, Patty's probably a pretty familiar name to you, or you'll start seeing it whenever he posts. Um, I completed his oil draining training, and I have to say he does a great job at making sure people know how to safely drain oil. Uh, great website by a great passionate ammonia guy. Now, the next website I got to check out was Frick's new training site. Now, this thing was about the greatest compressor training I've ever had. Frick did a great job at breaking down the history of screw compressors, uh, the operation of screw compressors, and even the terminology. 
and I'm a huge supporter of terminology. Learning the terminology allows us to be able to explain things much easier. And where this is a huge benefit is when you need to get technical advice. When you can properly name the components and the terminology used for certain actions, it makes it way easier to get answers to your technical questions. Frick's website gets as technical as you want. Um, with courses on compressors and packages and micros, it allows you to take a deep dive into all of the equipment that Frick has in the field. The website was flawless with moving back and forth between modules. A very great running uh, training site. You can register for the online training for free and then you can pick whatever course that you want to take. The courses do cost money, uh, but I can tell you that they are definitely worth it if you're trying to get ahead in our industry. And like I said earlier, invest in yourself. These trainings can put you on a fast track to being an expert on Frick equipment. If you're an operator that wants to get into the service industry, I would highly uh, suggest taking these courses. Um, they'll get you very familiar with Frick equipment. Uh, another cool feature of the website is you can download an app called Moodle Workplace and take your training mobile. Um, I haven't had a chance to check out the mobile version yet, so if any of you guys do so, uh, be sure to email me and let me know how it goes. Okay, so let's talk about today's podcast. I am joined by Mr. Don Faust today. Among being the trainer for Frick, Don has a pretty impressive resume. Uh, he was the vice president of Gartner Refrigeration, which I've personally worked on a project um, out in Rialto, California that Gartner built, which was a really solid system. Um, he was also the chairman of the Standards Committee for the IIAR. Today, he joins us to talk about the IIAR Book 6, which lays out inspecting, testing, and maintenance for our industry and equipment. So let's get into it. Don, how's your day going? My day is going well. How's yours, Josh? Um, it is going great, uh, especially with getting you on the show today. So <laughs> this was the highlight of my day. Well, thank you. Yep. Um, okay, Don, let's just jump right into it, man. Let's start with your background. Um, how does someone acquire as much knowledge as you have? Well, <laughs> that's kind of funny, but, uh, um, you know, you hang around the industry, uh, long enough and, um, and be observant. And when I was, uh, just getting out of school, I attended this, this, you know, motivational conference. And the guy said, if, if you want to become an expert at anything, study it for one hour a day, every day for a year. And you'll be an expert. And and I thought, well, that that can't be true. And and it turns out it is. If you read for an hour a day on a subject, you'll you'll become an expert. And so, I've always had the uh, the attitude that uh, the more you can learn about something, the better. And we've got a, a fascinating industry, and and it's an industry really. I think on the edge of a, a waterfall change and uh, that, that, you know, natural refrigerants were pushed aside for, for many, many years and now they're coming to the forefront. So um, my, my background is uh, I'm an engineer. I went to uh, Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And then I, uh, I worked down in Texas uh, for a company called Rico out of San Antonio. That's, uh, it's no longer, they were, they were purchased by Johnson controls 
or York at that time. And, um, and then I spent about uh, 25 years as a contractor in Minneapolis until uh, today when I am, um, <clears throat> I'm head of the Garland Center and do uh, training for Frick Company. I also have some responsibilities within the IIAR. I've been on the Standards Committee since uh, for, for a long time, <laughs> and uh, I am now the uh, the chair of the Standards Committee. And that and that committee is the the part of IIAR that's responsible for uh, ANSI certification of the IIAR standards. And we now have nine numbered standards, uh, one through nine. Uh, CO2 standard that just just got approved, and um, a hydrocarbon standard that we're hoping to be able to publish next year. Um, nice. So, so that's kind of what today's podcast is going to be centered around. Is um, is well, IAR six um, to be specific. Uh, so let's just get into it. Can you walk us through um, the process of creating the standards and, and what that looks like? Well, sure. You know, um, there are lots of things published in our industry. I mean, anybody could go to a magazine and and say something or write something or do an article, and that, that, then it becomes published. And and but what is you know what are proper guidelines for people to follow in in our industry? And it and it isn't just that it's published. Um. OSHA and EPA are looking for what they call consensus documents or things that are agreed upon. So the IIAR uh, was very hands-off in the code and standards community. For many years, we relied on ASHRAE 15 to be able to be the safety code for, for mechanical refrigeration, which is its title. Mm-hmm. But as it as time went on, ASHRAE 15 started getting more and more exceptions for ammonia. You know, hey, do this with ventilation, except if it's ammonia. And then do this with with relief valves, except if it's ammonia. And and it became clear that a separate standard for ammonia would would help out ASHRAE 15 because they could take out a lot of their exceptions. But the watershed event was back in, I'm going to say, 1985 or 86. National Electric Code came out and said, oh, hey, in engine rooms, if ammonia is the refrigerant, the engine room, all electrical in the engine room must be explosion proof, class one, div two. And none of us saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. And all of a sudden, here is the National Electric Code that everybody has to follow. And it says, you know, all that electrical work that you do in the engine room, you know, is now going to be many multiple times more expensive because it needs to be uh, explosion proof. And nobody even had an explosion proof control panel. It was, it was quite the deal. And, and at that point, the IIAR decided to get proactive and that we're going to start to, you know, participate with the model codes and find out on things that affect us. And at the same time, we realized there's a need to write standards for our industry. So we became an ANSI-accredited stab, uh, standards writer. And what that means is there's a process that we go through. And, you know, it starts off just like it used to be in the old days with a big old room and a whole bunch of guys who do refrigeration, guys and gals now, you know, who do yeah. refrigeration. Yeah. 
you know, putting down their thoughts of, of what should we say about this kind of thing. But, you know, that's the opinion of a group of people and not a consensus in the industry. So what we do through the IIAR is we put out that, you know, that first public review or a public draft and, and we make it available to everyone free of charge and everyone in our industry can comment on it. And we address each and every comment. If you write in a comment on an IIAR standard uh, during the review period, um, we will address it and, and uh, you'll get phone calls and you may get follow-ups from members of the committee. So there, it's a, it's a involved process and we have to answer every, every uh, comment and every concern. Now, sometimes our answer is no, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but at the same time, we try to tell them why it's no, it isn't, you, you can't just do like a parent and say no, because I said yeah. so, you know, you, you have to have, have a good reason. And, and so we try to establish what the minimum standard is for whatever we're addressing. And then that goes through multiple public reviews and, and the, uh, the standards committee has over 120 members. And with lots of varied backgrounds and uh, and and varied uh, levels of expertise in different areas, and we all go through them and answer every every uh, comment. And once that's done, then it goes to what to uh, what we call a consensus uh, um, opinion or a uh, <clears throat> consensus group, and they'll vote on it. Um, and they represent, you know, contractors, end users, designers, and manufacturers are all represented in this in this consensus body, and then they review it and approve it. Then the standards committee reviews it and approves it. Then the board of directors reviews and approves it. ANSI looks at it to make sure we've followed the rules, and if all that happens, then it becomes an ANSI standard. So how many how many submissions did y'all get? Do you do you know? Did y'all know the number of those? Oh yeah, well we're painfully we're like IIAR two was well over a thousand on on the first several public reviews, and and that's what'll happen, especially if a standard is greatly revised or new. You know the there'll be will generate a lot of interest uh, and. And, and people are, you know, sometimes, oftentimes the comments are all on the same thing. And we realize that, you know, we've, we've hit a nerve there, yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah. And, and just imagine, uh, you know, I always go, I go in front of my classes sometimes and I said, you want to find out how difficult a consensus is. Let's have a consensus on what we're having for lunch. There are only 20 of us here. you have to get everyone in the industry to basically agree you can have one or two you know dissenters but if there's a lot of dissension about something that's in the standard it probably doesn't belong in the standard because it's not a consensus Man, that's good to know because I know that, you know, I've heard the rumor mill is crazy. And, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about, oh, they're just doing this because they want, um, you know, they want the end user to spend all this money and, and you know, contractors get all this extra work. And so it's good for you to bring that up and, and you know, let everyone know the process. Um, 
you know, just so, you know, they know that it's not, nothing in here was, was done for financial gain. It was, you know, it was all for, um, you know, the right reasons. There are, there are a couple of things that, that have to guide us in that, in that light. And one of them is we can't do anything that commercially, you know, we can't say, Hey, you know what? You're going to have to use Acme, uh, flow indicators or something, you know, yeah, we can't do anything like that. That that's uh, that's uh, against the rules, and 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 we can't even favor a particular technology. What what we're going after is a minimum standard for for uh, for whatever the, uh, the that particular standard is uh, addressing. Nice. So so, how did IAR six come about? Like, what sparked the need for it? Well. <clears throat> It really, it goes back to the creation of PSM and RMP, you know, and those two laws uh, were enacted, you know, based on some industrial accidents, um, some that happened here in the United States. And of course, you know, the mother of all industrial accidents, uh, Bhopal, India for, for Dow Corning. So, um, and and what they try to do is create a a way you know the government studied those those uh, disasters and they said well you know we can't be an industrial policeman all right because then you're coming after the accident has occurred and slapping fines on people and that sort of thing and they said that won't work because we have to actually prevent the accident from occurring in the first place, which is, which is a, you know, a, a difficult style of enforcement. You have to be able to foresee that this action could cause a release of refrigerant or a release of a, of a, one of the covered chemicals. Mm-hmm. Many industries were more established than industrial refrigeration in terms of having documentation. And one of those industries is the petroleum industry. And they have what they call API specifications or American Petroleum Institute specifications. And they're, they're huge books. They're very well written. They're very detailed. And they've been doing this for 50, 60 years. Wow. Our industry had nothing. So OSHA looks and says, guess what? That petrochemical industry, they, have, they are covered processes. They have hazardous chemicals. And you, in the ammonia refrigeration industry, you have, have a covered process. You have over the threshold amount of, of chemicals. And, and but they said, you don't really have any maintenance guidelines. And then we went to, uh, to talk to OSHA at the Department of Labor uh, with the IIAR. Because we were considering, do we need an inspection, testing, and maintenance guideline or standard? And there was a lot of argument. There was a lot of argument against it. And a lot of it came from end users because they said, my goodness, if you put something out like this, you're just giving OSHA and EPA a knife to stab us in the back with. You know, that that it's bad enough now and you're going to make it worse. And and so we went to the Department of Labor and, and we're talking to them and talking quite frankly and honestly. And he said, well, it's maintenance is dangerous. And he pointed out several 
large disasters that had happened due to improperly performed maintenance. Uh, mm. the, one of the uh, oil rigs exploding out in the Gulf of Mexico. All right. Maintenance. They, 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 you know, who they were replacing a pump, didn't put the relief valves back on the pump. Pump came on, blew the relief valves, all of a sudden a huge fire. And they said, and this happens all the time. And they said, if the ammonia industry won't write a maintenance standard for itself, then we will find another industry standards to apply to ammonia and start issuing fines based on that. And that industry they were going to go to was American Petroleum Institute because they have a pretty complete set of guidelines. None of them that cover ammonia, you know, an expansion valve is never mentioned in, in any of their things. So it doesn't apply, but an OSHA inspector was going to apply it. So they were patient with us. It took us 10 years to get IIAR6 done. It was a long, long process because... A lot of people had to come around in our industry to seeing that there was a need for this standard, and that if we didn't do it, things were going to get onerous pretty quickly. It was ten years. I mean, I know, I remember. So when when was that? When when did that start? Then so because well, I remember IIAR six was published in twenty nineteen, and it was probably started about twenty oh eight. Wow. So y'all didn't, when did you put the first review out in like six, 17 or probably early 18? Um, I, I, I don't have that date in front of me, but you know, it went through, I mean, we had our own internal reviews that were, that, that were, you know, like throw it out and start over. <laughs> there were, wow. you know, a lot of different approaches to how do you do this and, and, and what's right. And, and how do you do something that's a minimum standard that covers, you know, like compressors from X company, Y company, and Z company, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, so the, it was, uh, it, it was a very long process, but uh, you know, I, I, and we were patient with it and really listened to the, uh, to the objections that people had. And, and I think came out with as good a compromise as we could. And, and, and plus IIAR6 accomplishes some things that, 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 are problems for users that had no other way to uh, to address. Uh, let me give you an example. Okay. You walk up to your high pressure receiver. Okay. Yep. And it's all painted. Oh, let's just paint it white. Okay. It's a white painted receiver. And three years later, you go up to it and you're walking with an ocean inspector, and there's a little couple, there's some spots of, of red where it, where it's rusted, you know? And you look and you say, oh, it's just a little bit of surface corrosion. And the uh, inspector looks at that and says, well, there's no corrosion allowance on the U1A form for your vessel. And he says, and I see corrosion. Prove to me that vessel's still valid. Prove to me that vessel's still good. Your only option at that point was to hire a company to come out and recertify the vessel. Oh, my goodness. Which is horribly expensive at, at, you know, at best and finding somebody to do it is, is bad, but you know, and, and so we didn't have any reg gap, you know, for 
a vessel that's in service that has a little bit of surface rust on it. And how many vessels do you run into in surface in service that don't have a little bit of rust on them? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So our customers, you know, our end users were facing terrific problems with trying to prove to somebody that this vessel is okay. Um, so what we did was put in a way in IIAR6 or the methodology uh, used by uh, boiler inspectors to verify whether um, uh, a vessel is, is uh, you know, requires a derating or something like that. It has to do with measuring the pits and how yeah. far they occur. And, and the actual text of it is in IIAR6. But what it, what it did is provides regagap for inspecting a vessel that's in service. Well, so there, and what is that? I mean, is that where you can just do uh, like a thickness reading? Well, uh, it's, it's hard to get a, th a thickness reading, but what you do is a pit depth and there, and, and, and boiler inspectors have these little tools with a little thing on it that they push down and, and they can tell what the pit depth is, if it's pitting or if it's crevice corrosion, depends oh, okay. upon the type of corrosion. And there are clear guidelines, and they follow what's in ba basically in boiler inspection code. Um, yeah. And and so a boiler inspector, and there are boiler inspectors in fifty states of the union, um, can come in and and inspect the uh, the the corrosion area of the vessel, and then you compare that to IAR six, what it says, and 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 you know a certain amount of wall loss thickness is acceptable. Mm -hmm. As long as it's over a small a small area, and um, and use that, or maybe you'll get there and say, "Hey, that's time to get a new vessel. There's too much corrosion. It would have to be re-rated in order to be to uh, continue." At that point, that vessel must be immediately removed from service. Yeah, and and that could be a <laughs> that could definitely be an issue, uh, you know, for the end user. Um, so let, let's go, let's, let's talk about this. What is going to surprise the end user with the IAR6? Yeah, I think, I think there are a number of things in, uh, that, that might be surprising. Um, one is how do you know something is an inspection or a test? Well, the answer is <laughs> there's a report. <laughs> 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 paperwork <laughs> if it is an inspection or it is a test there is a report and it is you know there is documentation and, and you know the, the the great saying from the OSHA inspector is if it isn't in writing it didn't happen yeah i think i think though there's there's a um uh, OSHA interpretation, it's the Lever Brothers interpretation that, that might surprise some people um, on daily rounds. You know how you, you'll have your daily rounds and you go up and, let's say, anchor bolts on the compressor. You know, is the compressor properly anchored? And, and, and you've got 10 compressors and there's a checkbox for each one. Uh, do you have to, if that's on your daily rounds, do you have to check that off every day? OSHA went to Lever Brothers and they had a checklist and they didn't do it every day. They managed by exception. They said, hey, uh, a guy will look through and, and if the anchor bolts are fine, he doesn't say anything. If the anchor bolts are bad, 
he will manage it by exception. And they went all the way to court and won. And so OSHA allows management by exception on frequent daily tasks, like your daily rounds, as long as it isn't a number that has to be recorded, but like, you know, listen for unusual noises, feel for vibrations. Is it properly anchored? Are the fan guards in place? Those kinds of things. And when I was doing the training to be an, an EPA inspector, I said, well, how do you know they're actually doing this? And the EPA inspector said, he said, I will ask for the last six months of exceptions. If they have no exceptions to their daily rounds in six months, he says, I'm going to dig, dig, dig. He said, and the other thing is I want to see what trained operator was assigned each day to do those rounds. And they must have a record of that. So if they've got a record with a trained operator doing the rounds and there are exceptions that they find on a regular basis, he said, we're good with it. So how would one document that? So if you're you're saying exception, so do do they have to put something fit? So let's just use the feet bolt for example. Is that something that they need to put on there? You know, well, on you, their in, in order to perform an activity, you must be trained on it, and you must have documentation of training. Yeah. So you train your operator on how to do the rounds, and you might tell the operator that uh, these these items we manage by exception. Only highlight something here if it it is not okay, and you're trained to know what is okay and not okay. And there must be records of who did the inspection if it's a daily inspection every day. So you would have some record that said, you know, Joe did it Monday, Mary did it Tuesday, Fred did it Wednesday, you know, that, that kind of thing. And have that each, uh, have, have those records. That makes sense. So, so you could just put it down in the training, you know, that this is something that you look for when you're doing your daily uh, you know, rounds. And then the exception would be like what a, a, a paragraph box on the bottom where you could write up compressor twos, uh, you know, one of the feet bolt were loose. Is that kind of what you mean by exception? Yeah. There, you Rather than checking off a hundred boxes yeah. every day, you don't check any of them unless there's something wrong. And that's the methodology you use for, oh, for doing your daily in, inspections is a check mark means something's wrong. Mm -hmm. One way to do it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That probably is going to be helpful. I, I had a, I had a situation once where, um, we 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 did a uh, a tall cold storage and, and it was a tall cube, and um, and it was a new operators and uh, you know brand new plant and they trained their operators and go through the daily rounds and one of the guys had the job to go up on this eighty foot tall roof and look for um, you know and inspect the air units on a daily basis and he did it every day. And one of the things in his checklist was, is there excessive ice buildup? And sure enough, in one of them, there was. So he checked it off and he continued checking it off for 10 days until water was pouring all over product and, uh, you know, things were getting bent. And then we came back and <laughs> realized that nobody was looking at his reports. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and that's one of the, uh, one of the requirements of IR6 is that um, weekly, at least a trained operator must review all the uh, all the inspections and tests that are performed
Nice. So, so that'll definitely, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen that. I know that a lot of these reports just get, um, you know, filled out and shoved in a drawer and, you know, nothing's reviewed from, you know, from that point on. Um, so that, that, that sounds like a great standard for sure. Um, so let's, let's go. How does IAR6 fit in with, um, OSHA's PSM program and, and the EPA's RMP program? Well, IIAR6 fills the need, you know, fills the need for, for something to, uh, to, to, for properly maintaining a facility, you know, because you remember we talked about the disasters, the Bhopal disaster, mm-hmm. um, uh, Shell in Houston, and um, the Piper rig in in the uh, in the in the Gulf of Mexico. When they when they get down to it, you say, well, you know, if you could change one thing that would have prevented all of these disasters, what would it have been? And the decision was, it's mechanical integrity. If mechanical integrity guidelines had been followed at all of those facilities, none of the disasters would have happened. And and inspection and testing and maintenance is a big part of mechanical integrity. It isn't all of it. You know, design goes into it, installation and decommissioning. They're all part of mechanical integrity, but during the operating life of the plant, which is the longest time period, um, it's uh, inspection, testing, and maintenance. It's the operation of the plant. So IIAR6 fills the void in the natural refrigerant industry for a guideline to tell you, you know, what is the minimum standard? What, what, what is the minimum that, that needs to be done to keep my system safe? Hmm. So is, is OSHA is, is, uh, issuing fines, um, at all as far as like for the IAR6? No, uh, not, and neither is EPA. And, and that's, that's a, a, a great question. You know, why should I pay any attention to IAR6? It's it's a voluntary standard, you know. Um, and when do you need to be in compliance with it? Well, it says right in program administration, an owner shall be in compliance with this standard when it is adopted by the authority having jurisdiction or it's adopted by the owner, whichever is first. And so you can say, well, hey, if I'm an owner and I don't adopt it, um, then I don't have to follow it. And you're correct until it's adopted by an authority having jurisdiction. And when you look up the definition of what is an authority having jurisdiction, it's purposely vague in all the codes. You know, you can go National Electric Code, International Mechanical Code, go to all those and look up authority having jurisdiction. And it's basically anybody who can issue a permit Anybody, you know, it could be like uh, your local fire department could be is an authority having jurisdiction, building inspectors, all that kind of thing. But there are there are two um, entities in Washington D.C. that also count as authorities having jurisdiction, and that would be the Department of Labor and uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. And so, as soon as OSHA and EPA decide to if you will, start enforcing the IIAR6 standard, which they will, I don't know when, but it will happen. 
you know, it's going to be a watershed event for the industry because you're going to see this standard that's been out there now for a couple of years mm-hmm. and no action on it. You aren't hearing anything about it. There aren't any fines or anything like that. And that's simply because OSHA and EPA recognize it takes time for an industry to accept a standard and to, to, to put it in. So the best course of action for, for people is to start incorporating IIAR6 into their ITM activities. If you go through an annual review of your SOPs, that sort of thing, it's time to get it in there because what's going to happen is they're going to go up to a big, you know, a big producer or a big end user, and they're going to go into one of their plants and they're going to, and they're going to issue them some monstrous fine for not following IIAR6. And there'll be a big knee jerk reaction by our industry. Like, Oh my gosh, what changed? And the answer is nothing changed. It's just that they decided now they'll start enforcing IIAR6 rather than scrambling to catch up. I think companies that are looking ahead are realize that this is going to happen and, and, but uh, I don't know when. Um, yeah, you know, the one thing that I've noticed is generally nobody makes a a change until they feel the pain. So it's going to take, and OSHA recognizes that. And, you know, I went to this EPA training thing and, and I started off and, and I, and I had a whole bunch of inspectors and they said, well, is there a question you would like to ask of EPA? And I said, yeah. I said, why are you picking on ammonia refrigeration? I said, you got guys out there with agricultural ammonia spraying it all over fields and everything. And I don't see inspectors out there saying, you know, how many hundreds of pounds got out. And I said, we do it. And it seems like you guys are just picking on us. And one of the inspectors came up and said, he said, I could see how you could say that. But he said, look at it from our side. Said, your industry doesn't police itself. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean by that? And then he showed me pictures from the Northeast of what some might call a cold storage, but it was a haunted house of horrors for ammonia refrigeration. I mean, just imagine the worst you've ever seen and multiply it by 10. And this guy's showing me pictures. And what had happened was like an old cold storage built in the 1950s got abandoned Somebody picked it up for pennies on the dollar and said, hey, there's a refrigeration system in here. And all we got to do is get this ammonia to buck a pound, throw it in. We can run this thing, I bet. Yeah. And they did it. And it was right in a city. And (laughs) obviously it was leaking like crazy. It was a big giant ice ball. They actually cleared out two blocks around it and and shut the thing down. Um, But it's an extreme example. Yeah, but you know, it's just common sense, and all of us would look at that and say, "Well, that you should never run that." But there's nobody to tell them no if there isn't an OSHA and EPA. So, you know, if common sense were common practice, we wouldn't need OSHA and EPA. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. I mean, there's a lot of the little small mom and pops, uh, you know, facilities out there that are tucked away. uh, that that's typically where I see it the most anyways. Like we've got these, these severely neglected systems, um, that, that really shouldn't be, shouldn't be running. So there's, I mean, I can for sure see the need and, and, um, I'm interested to see what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. We're not interested in putting anybody out of business, but also we want everybody to come home at the end of the day. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, you know, we deal with pressures that are, that, that, that could, that could hurt people. We have, you know, large quantities, you know, over the threshold amount quantities of hazardous chemicals yeah. and we want to keep them on the inside of the pipes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most certainly. Well, Don, um, man, I seriously appreciate you coming on. This was a, this was a real eye opener. Um, and I, I think, uh, I think we're going to have you on again here soon. Um, to talk about your other, the, the other side of your trade knowledge, um, with the Frick equipment. Uh, do you, do you have anything to add or, um, is there anything that you would like to say? Well, yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to thank all the listeners for listening, making it through to the end. Um, uh, I just like to give a plug. I have some great training available online training. I promise you it's different. Uh, go to www.fricktraining.com. You can register for free and see what I'm talking about. Awesome, Don. Yeah, it, it, you guys go do that. I've already checked a little bit of it out, and it is it is very uh, well designed, and it, it's a it's a really cool program. I I can't wait to get back to it. Well, thank you, Josh, and have a great evening. You too, Don. I appreciate it, man. See you. Bye bye. All right. Uh, I really enjoyed this interview. Um, Don is a very knowledgeable guy and I can't wait to have him back on, which will be soon. I can promise you that. Um, I did want to quickly touch on something Don talked about in the beginning of the podcast. Um, when Don was talking about attending a seminar and he was told that if he studied a subject for one hour a day, every day for a year, you'll be an expert. This is something that I personally do and can attest to its impact. Invest in yourself, guys. Don't worry about getting paid for it or anything like that. Those days will come, I promise you. Investing in yourself is the absolute best investment. And when you do this, you're going to start noticing changes in abilities. And in all honesty, it doesn't have to be with your career. Do it with your personal development. I am huge into self-improvement and trying to be the best person I can be. Trying to be the healthiest mentally and physically. And I'm not saying I'm super woke um, or anything like that. We just all have our own bullshit uh, that we have to work on. Spend some time working on yourself, especially if you think your life is shit. I don't want to get all personal or anything like that, but I do know that there's people out there that just need a little improvement. And when you put some effort into these things, life really does start looking up. Okay, I'm going to hop off my soapbox. Um, That is it for today's show, everyone. I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you guys have a great day. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.